The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. invite your attention this morning to actually the book, the small book of 2 John, 2 John, near the end of your Bible. Uh, I just looked it up in the Pew Bible. If you're visiting with us, that is on page 1025, 1025. Uh, if you're visiting with us and you do not have a Bible of your own, those blue Bibles, well, let that be uh, the gift from us to you as a record of your visit. Please take it. We'd rather you have the Word of God in your home than not. So if you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take that. You know, we have been uh, been here about five and a half months now. It's hard to believe. It's gone by quickly. Uh, but we've been through Philippians back in the, uh, from May to mid-August. We did some Ask the Pastor questions for about three or four weeks, had a guest speaker. And within the last month, we finished up the book of Jonah. And friends, as we go to Second John, I want you to know the reason we're going through these books. The next several weeks, from now until the uh, weekend of Thanksgiving, we're going to go through Second John. 3 John, and the book of Philemon. We're going to preach through three books in six weeks. Are you ready for that? <laughs> Amen. And they're short. Don't worry. If you look at 2 John, there's 13 verses there. We'll get through it very quickly. We'll break it up in a couple weeks. But what I want you to see as we go through this study, just before we start the sermon, is what a gospel-centered church should look like. We have seen Jonah in the Old Testament who was very mad about things that happened to him and why he thought God should have done things differently. Now we're transitioning to the end of the Bible, the end of the time we have written in the New Testament. What did the gospel look like after Christ died and a few years had transpired? That's where we're headed today. Because you know, it always makes sense that you have to have your truth in line, your facts in line, and that's what we're going to do today. But there was someone this last week, I think many of you know who this was. There was someone, i.e. the governor of Texas, who did not have his facts in line. Many of you saw this on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, the governor of Texas on the seventh inning, uh, or eighth inning maybe, of the Royals game last Monday, when it looks like the Royals were going to be knocked out of the playoffs, tweeted this out, or a staffer, we don't know who it was, congrats to the Astros on advancing to the ALCS. Well, that's funny, because last time I checked, the Royals are two games up in the ALCS. It pays to get your facts straight, doesn't it? And I guarantee you, they deleted this thing very, very quickly. And uh, actually, none of the teams he mentioned in there got to the, got to the next step, just, uh, just as an aside. Having your fa facts straight is necessary, especially if you're going to be a leader. Well, friends, in a more serious note, I've been looking at statistics, and statistics are what they are. But one thing I want you to know about stats is they often are telling, at least to some level, about what are going on with people. I want to give you some stats about some people who may not have their facts straight. Uh, first stat is this. Have you ever heard that Bible verse, God helps those who helps themselves? Some of you are looking around with smiles on your faces. Do you know 84% of people believe that's a Bible verse? Do you realize that? No, that's not a Bible verse. 77% people believe, percent believe that don't have their facts straight, that people are born basically good and not born into sin. Isn't that crazy? How about 60% believe that salvation can be earned by being a good person? Friends, if that's the case, and everything we sang about today, just throw it out the window. Jesus didn't pay it all because it would be up to us. 53% believe that Jesus sinned while he was on earth. That's scary. That was taken from a teen study by Lifeway about two months ago. 
and 22% believe that truth is whatever you think it is. Boy, that's scary. Now, if the governor of Texas still thinks the Astros are in the, the championship series, then more power to him. But the truth of the matter is our Kansas City Royals are actually in the championship series. I'm done with Royals references the rest of the sermon. <laughs> but it pays to get your facts straight, though, doesn't it? It really does. And, friends, those are things of telling of a culture because we are in a place today in our culture where there is a titanic battle between two irres irreconcilable forces. There's a struggle between truth and there's a struggle between falsehood. And it's always been there. But it's a battle for our hearts. It's a battle for our families. It's a battle for our homes. It's a battle over what we will love and what we will believe. I think you would agree with that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul put it this way in the second half of verse 10. He said of the people in that church that they perished because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. Friends, not only as Christians must we have our facts straight, but we also must have the twin rail, if you will, of love along with that. These rails, these tracks bring authenticity to the gospel message, truth and love, and they balance how we do things and why we do things as a church. Yet both truth and love, I think you'll agree with this, are endangered species today, aren't they? We either have too much love from the 60s coming through or we have very little glimmers of, of, of truth coming through from generations gone by. But we live in a world, don't we, where people are wrongly subjective and wrongly individualized. Some people say, well, because you like to think of something in a certain way, then they must be so. Well, that's true. If you, it, that must be true, right? If I think this, then it must be true. Tell the tax man that on April 15th next year and see how that works for you. We also live in an individualistic culture. In America, we are Christians for some things we have thought and unrelated to how we live. A lot of people say, I'm a Christian. I'm a blood-bought Christian, and, and I don't need to have a church. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. I mean, come on, pastor. I mean, I'm supposed to be who I am, right? So why, why do I have to follow what the Bible says? say, whoa, I would never think that. You realize that most of the people that were quoted in those statistics would probably agree with those statements. So how do Christians and Christian churches challenge these, these thoughts today going around against truth and love? How do we get our facts straight? I mean, but shouldn't we just appeal to those things? Shouldn't we make a church based upon the preferences of people and based on uh, just allowing them to do whatever they want to do inside the confines of a church? Shouldn't we just do that? I mean, pastor, let's be real. Wouldn't that get more people in the door? Or shouldn't our church look more like the world just to reach people? What do you think? It's a good question. That's where the Apostle John's headed in this book, this short book of 13, 14 verses. The big idea then is simply this, friends. This answer, I'll answer the question for us. Because the gospel of Christ is so endlessly rich, and boy it is, it can handle being the burden of the one main thing in the church with truth and with love. You see, a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. You get the gospel wrong, you get everything else in the church. You will hear me say this phrase a lot at this church. From diapers to decisions, it is all about Jesus Christ. Amen? Say diapers? Yeah. Try and change a diaper to the glory of God. Amen? If you haven't done that, come to our house. We have two you can try and practice on. Trust me. But when, you, when the gospel is expounded, the church will be unique in this world. If your church is not the best outreach of your church, maybe something's wrong with your church. You ever think about that? Friends, if our witness here today is not the best outreach that we have, then something's wrong. So where are we headed with this? 
I think John gives us two things. Can we know God apart from a church is the question he's asking today. We're going to look at two quick things this morning. We're going to see that first, a biblical church is rooted in the shared truth in Christ, verses 1 to 4. We're going to see, secondly, that a biblical church is known by its love in verses 5 and 6. 2 John is a tiny book. How many of you have read 2 John? Just and raise your hand. A lot of you, most of you have read it. How many of you have heard a sermon on 2 John, just out of curiosity? A few hands go up. Well, this will be your first. It's an anonymous letter uh, in the sense that it's written to a group that we're not sure who it is. We know who the author is. It's John. But we're not sure who he's writing to. We'll get there. It is the second shortest book in the New Testament, 245 words. The third John, book of third John is 219. Friends, this could have been the last book possibly written in the New Testament. You say, I thought Revelation was. Possibly. Depends. It's, it depends on who you talk to. But it's possible John could have gotten off the island of Patmos and written this after Revelation. But that's debatable. But John is going to be shortened to the point. His whole letter, he's writing to a church that has been challenged after years of Christ's death of what is truth and what is love. What is truth and what is love? And it's no surprise that both of these themes, he's going to tie around the gospel. And so as we look at 2 John, we want to make sure we get those two things right. What is biblical truth? What is biblical love? Because, friends, if we get that right, then our church is heading in a good, good direction. With that in mind, if you'll join me, if you're able this morning, in honor of the Lord's word uh, to stand, we will read verses 1 through 6. 2 John verse, verses 1 through 6. 1025 in the Blue Bible in the pew, if you need to use it that way. Reading out of the ESV today. This is the word of the Lord. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but all those who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. I rejoice, verse 4, greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to the commandments, and this commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Pretty short, isn't it? A lot of truth packed in there. Let's go before the Lord in prayer as we start our study today. Father, we thank you so much that we can smile at the gaffes of uh, tweets gone bad. Father, we can even smile at perhaps uh, not in a judging way, Lord, but perhaps just smiling to, to see how misinformed at times the culture can be. Father, because we know the truth. Father, sometimes getting our facts straight with love is difficult. Sometimes uh, getting love with truth is difficult. Father, help us to do both well at this church. Help us to have the balance stricken by your, your, your son through the spirit to know how to do that. Father, as we read through this, may you give us practical words for our church and for our families, for our lives, to not only just take the head knowledge we hear today, but, Father, by the unction, by the illumination of your spirit, to take it to our hearts. Father, we love you. We praise you. We know it is all by grace. It is always all by grace that we can come to you. So thank you for that. We pray this to the glory, honor, and advancement of your kingdom in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. This book is very short. I will be very honest with you about that. But I, I think the first thing is, can we know God apart from a church? 
Can we know God apart from a church and the truth and love found in that church? Well, the first thing we need to know is this author, the elder, is, is 2 John, is John himself. John is the author, of course, of the Gospel of John, the longest writing, one of the longest writings of his, the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he's writing to a very unique group of people. You'll notice there in verse 1, he, he emphasizes the personal relationship. Your Bible may say elect lady or chosen lady. I'm not sure what your translation may say. But who is he writing to? This is, some of you all like this stuff, some of you all don't, but I'm going to share it anyway. This is kind of back history, just so you know. This could be a local church. This could be a she referring to a local church. We don't know. That's probably the best view. This could be the church universal, any church, anytime, anywhere. We don't know. That's been argued. But it also could be an individual lady and her children, an elect lady. We tend to go with the local church and its members being the recipients of this letter. And this elect lady, this is a term of respect, of endearment. He is writing to this church knowing they're going through hard times, but knowing at the same time that they are still worthy of respect. Friends, this is just a quick aside to say that even as pastor, I have to be careful not to judge what God is doing in other churches. If the gospel is preached, if the ordinance are given correctly, may God's word be proclaimed. And, and I think that's something that we see as we start this. But they belong to him, and God cares for them personally. And God cares for them individually. So what does John tell us? If we're going to be a gospel-centered church, he tells us we must love the truth, we must embrace the truth, we must enjoy it. And how we do that first off is we must have a context for love. Look back at verse 1 with me. We must have a context for love. In verse 1, we immediately see John has a concern for the truth in the context for love. He says, I, I am writing this. Literally, I myself love. He is emphasizing to the nth degree his love for this church and the love for the truth. He uses this word love at least five times in these opening verses and truth in that same sense. John is connecting his love for the truth with his love for the local church. Friend, those are never separate. Please don't think that you can just go and come and write down notes and you can never love someone as Christ calls you to love. That is the trap, honestly, sometimes a seminary or Bible college. Because you can go and get filled up with knowledge, and it never penetrates your heart. May that not be where our church is at. But John says that the truth abides or remains. Literally, the truth that he's writing to this church remains both in us and with us forever. Aren't you grateful for that? Haven't you noticed how many times in the scripture that when God uh, uses the scripture that often the writers will say, I write this to remind you. Now, I know none of you will ever forget your wife's birthday. Um, I know none of you have ever done that. My wife's birthday is coming up this week, and I almost forgot it. I almost scheduled a meeting on my wife's birthday. True story. Write these things down. But John makes it very clear that the truth abides or remains in them because he knows that the truth will last forever. Non-Christian, if you're not a Christian here today, can I ask you a question? Do you care about the truth? The truth matters because we are fallen people in a fallen world. If it is true that we are dead in our sins and, and we need help because God is rightly angry with, us, angry with us, then truth matters. Friends, this is why at every step along in this church that our prayer should be that we are truthful in how we present information. I can tell you many of you have asked great questions on the Ask the Pastor blog. I've gotten so many, how do I say, challenging comments from people who say, that is not truth, that is not true, that is not true. 
Friends, we stand in this church on the truth of God's word at all times, in all places, in all circumstances. Do you believe that? It's hard. But non-Christian, what is truth for you? Is truth just what you make of it? Is truth just how whatever you think in the moment? You know, I had a guy in Westport one time tell me, he said, Darren, I don't believe that there's one absolute truth in this world. I said, okay, then stand out on Westport Road in the busy intersection and wait for the party bus to come by. And tell me that bus is not real. Well, that would mean I'd be dead. Well, yeah. And he goes, oh, I get it. And the light bulb came on. There is a truth. There is a reality. There are absolutes in this world. And if you're not a Christian here today, can I tell you the truth? There is an absolute truth here. But Christian, understand the importance of marrying those two concepts. I'll repeat it again, but a distorted church usually coincides with a distorted gospel. That's the first application point. The understanding will produce love as we pray and care for the community of believers here. This is why we pray for other churches as our church. This is why we don't say that Tower View, like that old game Monopoly, isn't the park place and the Broadway of everything that happens in the church world. Maybe it is, but even if it's so, we're still praying for those other pieces on the board, so to speak, if you know what I mean. Friends, the gospel is powerfully displayed when unlikely groups of people are united together in love. And that's what John is saying in the first verse, is that if we want to be a biblical church sharing that truth of love, we have to know the context is love. We love only well when we understand the gospel well. And friends, that's why we make such a big deal about Jesus dying for us and resurrecting. Because when groups of sinners commit to love one another, that's how the gospel is displayed. So that's the first truth. Second truth is this, and, and see it in the second verse here. He, he gives us not only the context for our love, but he gives us the reason for our love. Let me read verse 2 for you. He says, because the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. Truth in the biblical sense, folks, is essential, but it's never optional. Truth in the Bible is eternal. It's not relative. Truth is consistent in the Bible. It's not changing. Truth is per permanent, and it's not based on our perspective. Paul's, or Paul, so, whew, John, I, I'm losing my thought here. John tells us here that truth will abide with us forever. You know, I think sometimes as we talk with people about the God of the universe, we live in a democratic society, don't we? We'll be voting on a new president next year, and I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm saying to pray biblically. But one thing I will say is when you talk to people about God, they say, well, that's not my God. Darren, I don't believe that I should believe the truth of Christianity. I just want to love because your God is mean, man. Have you ever heard that before? Your God is mean. I don't want anything to do with him. And they say, well, if I could vote God out every four years, man, I would vote him out and I would put someone else in his place. Friends, I am grateful that the truth that John talks about here and the reason we can love is that that truth remains forever. The truth is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth we have in the scriptures is the truth that must be embraced as our very own, and it's a consuming passion we have. The reason we love one another is because God does not change. The reason I cannot be offended when someone offends me is because God has shed his own blood for their soul and my soul. Friend, what about you? Do you love because of some truth? John says Christians know a love that lasts forever. Do you know that love today? Do you know that truth? If not, ask yourself, was God obligated to love you? Was God obligated to love you? And what is the answer, congregation? 
The answer is no. So here's one, the application point I'd say under this point is simply this. Don't love Jesus for just what he does for you. Love him for who he is. Christian love is not based on loveliness. Love for others is not an actual outpouring in a church context. It is hard to love in a church. I don't know if you've ever known that before. I've told you before, I've seen churches split literally over the color of the carpet. So, you know, if you like purple fuchsia, I don't even know. If you like some weird color and we vote on that, don't be offended if I vote no, okay? I'm just saying, Christians get very fickle sometimes. Husband, wife, and when you took your vows together, did you not say for better or for worse, for poor, richer, for poor? The, mere, the more clearly we understand that God loved us when we were most ugly, when we were most unlovable, the more this congregation will be loving. There's no place for selfishness in a gospel-centered church. And what John is telling them is that this truth lasts forever. That is the reason you love is because God's truth lasts forever. Is there a greater love to know than to share that love with us? And, and he would say, no. So we see it's a context for love. There's the reason for love. And thirdly here in verse 3, he gives us the place of shared blessings. Look back at that, that verse here with me. He says, I write to you with grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. You, know, you may remember from our study of Philippians, if you are here at the very beginning back in May, that introductions are important, aren't they? You know, a lot of you, I come up to you, hey, how are you? You're doing well. And that's just a passing, fleeting thing. We say it all the time. It's kind of like liking something on Facebook. It really doesn't mean much, but it makes you feel good. Someone acknowledge your presence. Friends, John has some very intentional words here, though. This is just not a passing thought. He wants us to enjoy the truth. Notice John doesn't say the truth may come with shared blessings. He says it will come with shared blessings, and that's grace, mercy, and peace. A biblical church is a context for shared truth because of these three things. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just define these for you. You may be wondering what they mean. Grace is undeserved favor. It's undeserved favor. Mercy is showing favor when we do wrong. And peace means that our alienation from God is put away. Let me give you a practical example. I don't know who has the best car in the parking lot outside, I think our minivan is pretty nice, so I'll just use our minivan as an example, okay? We have a white minivan. We're in that stage of life. You can make fun of me later. But one thing I will say is let's, let's say I let you borrow my minivan, our nice white minivan, and you just go and you wreck it. I ask you, are you safe? Yes, you're safe. And then you are just so scared. Man, we wrecked this minivan of Pastor Darren. What is going to happen to me? Mercy is when I say it's okay. You're forgiven. It's no big deal. I'm glad you're safe. That's all that matters. Grace is when I take that and say, not only are you forgiven, but I'm going to give you the Lamborghini I have in my, uh, my, my garage at home <laughs> and give that to you. It's undeserved. And you go out and you wreck that, and guess what? You're really scared now. And that's when I come to you, and not only do I give you more mercy, I forgive it. I give you more grace. I give you a tank. And then I give you peace because I say we're good because you're going to not wreck this thing ever again. <laughs> that is mercy, grace, and peace in an automobile world. <laughs> Friends, we don't deserve God's mercy. We don't even deserve him to forgive one sin. We don't even deserve the grace to be forgiven for all eternity. And let alone do we deserve his peace that we can have. But Paul says that these are shared blessings among Paul. I keep saying Paul. Wow. 
John is saying that this is what happens in the church. Do you know that today? If you're not a Christian here today, do you know the grace, peace, and mercy of our God? I pray that you do. But Christians, what does this do for us? This means that we have a very specific command. Is there someone that you need to extend mercy to or grace? I am not saying go wreck a car and hope that they give you the best. It's not what we're saying. But I am saying that the church is to be a shared context of biblical love. And to do that, we are to show these things forth. Why? Did you see what the text said here? Did you see that the love, grace, and mercy is from two distinct persons? Who are they? It's the Father and who? And the Son. That preposition there, from, is very significant. It's from the Father. It's from the Son. It conveys the idea of equality of position while maintaining distinction in the person. Friends, we believe in one God and three persons, the Blessed Trinity. Not three gods, one God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we believe they're all equal, yet distinct. And to make this clear, God is identified as Father twice. And in terms of the relationship between Jesus the Son and the Father, Jesus Christ is God, but he is also God the Father's Son. Whew. Wrap your mind around that one seven times and tell me how you feel. He is the anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, sent by the Father for the world for the purpose of redeeming humanity. If you have a Jehovah's Witness or someone come up to you and say, I don't believe Jesus is God, take him to this verse, friends. This is one of the most clear verses that we have in the Scripture that talks about who Jesus Christ is. And you know what that means? That means we have his grace, we have his mercy, and we have his peace. What does that mean for us as a church? Next application point, I think, is simply this. And you've heard me say it a million times, but let me reiterate this. Grace especially means, church, that Tower View is a place where it's okay that we are not okay. We are, should be a place where it's okay not to be okay. I hope you believe that. Because some of you are KU fans, and I'm not okay with that. <laughs> some of you aren't Royals fans, and I'm not okay with that. But I am okay. That's a very superficial analogy. But do you understand the connection? That we are okay to not be okay because God meets us where we are, but God doesn't want us to stay where we are. Friends, I've heard so many people say that great old hymn, come just as you are. Yes, come just as you are, but don't stay just as you are. God won't let you. Christian, are you confident that you have this grace? Are you extending this grace to others? The good news is that Christ won't lose you. Have you lost connection with him in your relationship? Church, how are we as a congregation showing these truths forth? The church is almost completely conceded the work of grace and ministry to outside agencies. I am grateful that our church, though, stands up for benevolence. I'm grateful that we have a program in place. I'm grateful that the Clay Platt, a Baptist association whom we associate with, has put into place safeguards for benevolence ministry. Would you pray for those who come and see Miss Judy and myself 9 to 2 on a Monday through Thursday who are really in need? Would you pray for our deacons as we have wisdom in order to show the grace of Christ in the most practical way. Friends, because that's what it's about, is showing that truth. But have we lost the grace in this church? Would you pray that God's grace permeates not only benevolence, but everything that we do? Last point on this point is this. He's given us a context for love. Verse 1, the reason for love, the blessings of shared time together. And lastly, in verse 4, he gives us motivation to obedience and joy. Truth is motivation to obedience and joy. Let's read that one more time. 
John says this. He says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Does this seem strange to anyone else? I mean, think about this. The world tells you that joy is found in going against God's word, but John says that joy is found in obeying God's word. Is that not just 180 to anyone else in this room? Ask yourself this morning, what gives you joy? Is your joy found when the Royals come back, sorry, in the last inning with five runs and win the game? Do you get more joy over seeing the boys in blue win a game than you do for someone coming to know Jesus Christ? That's a question I've had to ask myself in the last week, to be quite honest with you. Beware of what takes joy for you, friends. Are your joys Christ's joys or are the joys of discipling and the joys of serving and sharing the gospel more important than a baseball game that will be here today and gone hopefully in the next two weeks? Make space for others in your life. Friends, as a pastor, as staff, I like I think I can speak for you on this, knowing your heart as this, as deacons, as the leadership of this church, the greatest thing that makes the pastor happy is not that you necessarily whatever in your life. We, we celebrate the joys and, and everything in your life, but you know what makes a pastor's heart warm? It's just what John said, is that when we see that God's word has so gotten in you and that you are walking in that truth, even if that step is like a baby at 11 months takes a little bitty step, even if that's as far as you go, Blake, I think we can affirm that when we see that in someone's heart, we're like, woo, we're, we don't need caffeine. We've got the joy of the Lord because we see that in our lives. Friends, think about how Paul talked about the joy to the Thessalonians. In chapter 3, verse 8 of that book, he said, For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. Friends, rejoice in this church, not because of things that we do, but because of progress being made in hearts of people. That's where the rejoicing is. And John was convinced, unless the truth reaches and reflects and affects the heart, the inner man, it is of no real value unless you can see progress in it. Remember, truth and love. But also notice he says, be concerned with what you believe. He was very glad to see some of his children walking in truth. Friends, I think the application point before we move on, this is the longest point of the sermon, is the sin beneath all other sins is a lack of joy in Christ. When John talks about truth, he's not interested in philosophy at a college campus. He is focused on the gospel and transformed lives from it. He will talk about in verse 7 about having the right understanding of who Christ is. He will talk about in verse 9 about remaining in Christ's teachings. He is focused on the truth of the gospel of grace, mercy, and peace because he knows that is the only way you will walk in the truth as individuals and we will walk in the truth as a church. John knew, though, that many today, and even then, would not do this. Friends, the bottom line, there are basically four options to what John is saying here. You can reason. You can say, I think. You can have your tradition and say, we've always done it that way. You can experience and say, I feel. Or you can trust what the Bible says, the revelation of God's word. And God says for John, God has revealed himself in his son, and that is where the truth is settled for him. Christian, are you settled in this church that no matter what programs we have, no matter what things we do, that it all comes back to Jesus Christ. If you are settled with that, our church is closer to becoming a gospel-centered church more than ever before. But it starts individually in our hearts with that very thing. The basis for all Christian love is to believe in Christ. 
Now, this next uh, thing, uh, this next illustration, I always want to share this with you because I think many of you, well, I hope you haven't been in this situation. It's about a cop who pulled over a driver. Are you ready for this? This is actually a true story that came out of Houston a couple years ago. After a man had been pulled over for speeding, a policeman asked for his driver's license and registration, and the man explained his license had been revoked because of his horrible driving record, and he didn't have the registration, and the car was stolen. Can't fault him for being honest, right? He quickly corrected himself and thought, so wait a minute, I think I saw the registration in the glove compartment. True story here, guys. And in a panic, he said, but I put my gun there as well. <laughs> the officer said, you have a gun? And the man calmly replied, oh yeah, I used it to rob the bank down the street. After I threw the money in the trunk, I put my gun here in the glove box. Well, as every good cop would do, he immediately drew his gun and radioed for backup. Within two minutes, several patrol cars descended on the area, and the captain jumped out and approached the car with his gun and trained it on the suspect. He asked for his ID, and the man pulled out a valid driver's license from his wallet. The captain asked him if the car had been stolen, and the man assured him, no, captain, really, it is not stolen at all. He reached into the glove compartment where there was only a couple maps and pulled out his current registration. The confused captain asked the man to slowly open his trunk, and there was nothing but a dull spare tire that needed to be inflated. And then the captain lowered his gun and said, I don't understand. The officer called for backup, and you said you didn't have a driver's license. That car was stolen. You robbed a bank with it, and the money's in the trunk. The driver said, yeah, and I bet he told you also I was speeding. True story. If you don't believe it, I have. I can show you the Houston Chronicle article. <laughs> Friends, don't be gullible. Don't be. I, I mean, the cops did their job. Please don't get me wrong. I mean, they obviously did their job. But truth and getting it right in love matters because this man, he just he was spinning a story just to get out of anything that he could. He, he backtracked when everything said truth and love can't do that. Friends, we cannot be a church that is so doctrinally high. We get all our I's dotted, all our T's crossed. We know our Bibles backwards and forwards, but our hearts are as cold as stone. That's not the church that's gospel-centered. But on the equal side, we can't stand, we can't not stand for truth and just let, well, if you love it, just do it. If it feels good to you, boy, just get out there and do it. This is the church, man. It's all about you and Jesus got your own. Friends, we have to marry those two concepts together. A biblical church has a balance between love and truth. And when a church isn't such a production of either side of those, it becomes a simple family with those things involved. John was writing to a church that was in some dire straits. False teaching was coming in. But he says, look, if you want to do this right, church, then you got to know it's the gospel that's going to keep you going forward because we share truth together. Would you pray for Tower View that we are doctrinally high? We don't settle for less than what the Bible gives us, but we also don't let love fall by the wayside. That is a prayer for a gospel-centered church. That's the prayer John had for this church. Second thing, I told you that was the longest point. Second thing is this, a biblical church, can you know God apart from a church, is known by its love, is known by its love. Look back at verses 5 and 6 with me. John says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to the commandments, and this commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. 
Friends, a Christian church is characterized by love. A Christian church is characterized by love. And wrong thinking inevitably leads to wrong living. If the mind is confused, the heart will be corrupted. Right thinking, however, is the right soil which emerges the right living. That's how we live correctly. And for John, right living is a life of love that is a supernatural response to the one experiences he had, the one experience in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in verse 5, he says, first, a church will be known by its love as simply as it is, first subpoint, by loving one another, by loving one another in verse 5. If you've read through anything of John, you know that the one, he has several contrasts, black and white, light and darkness, but love is a major theme of his books, especially outside the gospel. But did you know that love is also a theme of the prophets that preach judgment and condemnation in the Old Testament? Do you know love is also what Peter, Paul, and the writer to Hebrews and Jesus wrote about? For John, truth is not just something you believe. For John, truth is something you live out through Christ's love. Truth, true truth, will always make a beeline to love. And John now calls this local body of believers, called the Dear Lady, it's a church, church local, to love one another. He says it's not a new command. John 13, we read this often in times of service. We, John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said this. He said that we are to, I'll just kind of summarize it, but basically Jesus was saying that the love that you have, you are to show one to another, and that's how we will know others by, if they're Christian, by their love. Friends, the service we have towards one another is a testimony to what God is doing among us. False teachers will always have a new idea. Do you realize that? False teachers will come up with new ideas all the time or rehash the old ideas. But the one constant that keeps a biblical church, keeps your family, keeps your faith going, is truth married to love. And John is telling them this is not a new commandment because if you can imagine a church with new to the gospel, all sorts of ideas are coming in. John planted this church most likely, and all sorts of things are happening. And, and, and these people are saying to themselves, well, John told us this, but we're hearing this. What are we supposed to do? And John says, obey the truth, but don't forget the difference, folks, between us and every other religion is a true sacrificial love. As often as it's been said, it's true. The only God that died for his people was in Jesus Christ. With respect to them, Muslims do not have that. Muhammad did not give his life for his people. The Hindu gods did not give their millions of lives for their people. The Buddhists, they're just thinking mind games. They did not give anything. Friends, the only one who loves so sacrificially that we might love is Christ himself. And Christian, the love for another is a hallmark of Christian love. The world says it's all about you. It's all about your status updates. The world says it's all about what you bring to the table. The world says it's all about your 15 minutes of fame. The world says it's all about what you can do. Friends, the gospel turns it on its head and says it's not about you. It's about him, and it's about what he is doing through you to reach other people. Don't buy into this culture, friends, that says it's all about you. Woo, rah, hoorah me. But here's the first point. This is going to affect everything we do in the church because the church is made up of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. As superficial as it is, you could have a fight, and you, many of you have seen this, fights over sports teams. I have been at a band competition and watched parents almost duke it out over which marching band was the best band. 
I mean, some of you have been to little soccer games with little kids, and the parents are in there slugging each other while this mass of kids is running and scoring goals back and forth. What separates our love from the world? It's that we are not naturally as Christians bent together, but the gospel bends us together because it's in Christ. Christian, pray that God would help you inconvenience yourself to love others in this church. John's message of love is truly Christian. It's from the beginning and not new. It's true because it's not old, but because it's from Christ, and Christ is eternal. Be careful of what's new. This culture, there is something new every day. This tie I bought in 2009 was popular in January 2009, but I bet it's not in vogue now. And your clothes are probably the same. We can commiserate together. But realize that the Bible's truth. If we want to be a biblical church, friends, that the love is the same. The biblical love is the same yesterday, today, forever, because God's love is that. Last point is this. How are we to be a biblical church? By love for God's commandments. Verse 6. The message of love entails obedience. In verse 6, John tells us we are to demonstrate our love for God, not only by loving one another, verse 5, but by walking according to his commandments. If my wife tells me, if I tell my wife I love her, but that stinky trash hasn't been taken out, she asked me to take out for five days, she will know my love by my actions. Amen? Husbands? Amen. Thank you, Carlos. You're the only other one that hasn't taken out the trash after a few days. It happens. Friends, love is something that God gives us not just to talk about, but to go and do. The greatest evidence that you are a Christian, if you are a Christian here today, is that you love God's commandments. Let me be absolutely clear. If you're not a Christian, you are not saved by being a good person. No amount of goodness can make you a Christian, can take you to heaven. But if you proclaim Christ and you say, I'm a Christian, the way we know you're a Christian is that it is evidenced by your works. You are not saved by your works, but your works evidence whether or not you are truly a Christian. And we will love God by obeying and walking. Literally in the Greek, to walk about around in a circle is the picture here. He's basically saying, walk around, do it all. Walk around, do it all. Love, truth, love, walk around, do it all. This is getting very hard to do. But you can imagine that's what John told them. He said, don't buy into the culture of Roman culture that says, don't believe this truth. Because it pleases God when you obey his truth. I've often had someone tell me this before. It's a true quote from someone. I'm about to have Amy put up here for me. Someone has said that I experience church better without, better without gathering with the church. And my response to them was simply this. It is like experiencing marriage better when I don't have to be around my wife. <laughs> Friends, this is why we say at this church so often that your love and your truth are married together in this local church. That's why it's so important with church membership to, 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 to plant in a church. Whether it's here or God calls you somewhere else, find a church. Be faithful in it. Because the way you show forth your obedience is, is to show forth, not pridefully, but together walking in God's word. That's how love is displayed to the world. I love the church, the culture say, but I hate the institution. Is like saying I love my wife, but I hate marriage. Imagine if we all acted right, did good deeds, recycled, helped each other out, went to church, but we didn't treasure Jesus as a church by obeying his commands. Friends, Satan, who is real, would love that to the nth degree. Can I also say this, a pastoral word? 
I've talked with many of you, and, and we have great aspirations for where God is taking Tower View, but can we remember patience and also this? Love our church where it is. But know we will grow when we obey God. We love God. We cherish his word. We cherish his people, and we cherish his commands. Don't let the vision of where God may take this church someday get in the way of your love for the church that you have right now. Or can I say that in the reverse? Don't let what we did 40 years ago, as great as God may have blessed that, be the staple point to say, God, I can't ever change. I'm not going to do that. That's not how, friends, this church will move forward with the gospel truth and with the gospel love. And that is what John is telling this church to do. The local congregation here should realize it is essential to bring a truly Christian church. Imagine a church without love. Imagine a church where we all came together and sang songs. I would not want to be on the unloving side, if I can use a personal antecedent, Blake, with you. I would not want to be on the, uh, and Jesse Shea, I'm looking at our big guys here, our big young men, Nick Woods, others who can beat me outside with a stick and I'm dead. You know, <laughs> I'm serious. Friends, imagine a Christian church without the gospel love. It is a WWE slugfest without any reason to meet. But the reason we come together is because Christ gave his life for us. Let me close with this. You know, children know about Buzz Lightyear. I think most of you know the story. Toy Story 4 is coming out, and you can watch it or not. We, Natalie and I did that a few years ago. We watched Toy Story for our date night, loved it. But, you know, the Buzz Lightyear is like the guy in that movie, right? Every young kid knows Buzz Lightyear. If you don't know who Buzz Lightyear is, that's a, that's a recommendation to watch a movie. But this young kid showed up one day in his preschool Sunday school class with Buzz Lightyear. He brought Buzz to church, and the teacher was talking about God's unlimited love. And at the end of the class, the teacher asked the children, so how much does God love us, kids? And it was silent, and the guy took his Buzz Lightyear, and he said, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> church, that's how much God loves us to infinity and beyond, if I can be so trite and so silly. Friends, love this church, serve her, revere her. Sometimes I think the church has so many programs, and not just this church, I think churches get so many programs that we just don't love each other. If you want a challenge today for reading, go read Acts 2, 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Pray that for our church. This church John's writing to is in a tough strait. Friends, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray here at this church that we are known for our stances of truth. I think you've gotten that vibe. I pray equally that we are known for our love at this church, and I think our community knows that. Our job at this church is not just to provide community wellness. Our church is to provide community wellness with the gospel of Jesus Christ because through that physical need met, the spiritual need can be communicated. But we can even communicate the spiritual without the physical. But, friends, we live in a neighborhood, an area that is ripe for the picking. Judy, I, I'm looking at Judy. How many people do we have come in our office week after week who say, this church is the only church that has been willing to sit down and talk with me? I, I may be over-exaggerating that a little bit, but friends, we have a great blessing here in our neighborhoods. Would you pray that our church stands for these things? Husband, if you have a family, would you pray your, church, your family stands for these things? You're single, would you pray you stand for these things in your life? This is not the most well-organized message I've ever given. I will be honest about that. But one thing we need to know, will you pray our church stands big on truth, big on love, and God takes those and marries those concepts together. Let's go before the Lord in prayer.
Father, I thank you this morning that you are a great and awesome God. And Lord, as we celebrate what you are doing at this church, may we, as the church John wrote to, remember that the biblical basis for love is shared truth and the biblical basis for love is biblical love of the gospel. Father, we are reminded of that time and time again. Lord, be clear in this message where I was not clear. Father, open up doors where perhaps doors need to be opened, closed doors, perhaps where doors need to be opened as a church. Father, I pray for families in here, for husbands and fathers. Lord, would you give great wisdom to them as they love, but also stand strongly in a culture with their families for their little ones. For mothers the same, Lord, would you do that. For grandparents in here. Father, I pray for families that are really struggling. They know the truth. Maybe families in here have known the Bible truth for years, but there's really not much love between them. Lord, would you soften hearts with that truth and bring them closer together? Father, because the gospel... Father, would you do that here in relationships that maybe have been uh, misunderstood or things have been said or not said or not communicated or communicated too much? Would you soften hearts, draw them for your namesake into unity together? Father, this isn't going to be a Mayberry. It's not some perfect picture of a 1950s town. But Lord, through our messiness, through our brokenness, would you help us to know that it is your truth and your love that unite us? Father, that's our prayer. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.